We made this. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Red and Buried Podcast with me, Sarah. And Frankie, it looked like you didn't know the name of the show for a second there. Oh, I'm not going to lie, I think I've said this before, every time I search our podcast on social media to check something, I search Dead and Buried. Yeah, perfect, good. Every single time, see I was thinking about it. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for another very special interview. We have the amazing author Fiona Cummins with us today. Hi Fiona. Hello, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks. thank you so much. Fiona, as always, I've, I've got a little bio about you that I'm going to read and you can tell me if it's still correct and accurate or not. <laughs> oh, this is the problem with the internet. We have to rely on them to tell us the truth. So, <clears throat> in my best documentarian voice. Fiona Cummings is the award-winning former Daily Mirror showbiz journalist and graduate of the Faber Academy. Faber or Faber? That's a good start, isn't it? Faber. It is Faber. Faber. Yeah, perfect. Nailed (laughs) it. Thank you so much. She's the best-selling author of five crime thriller novels, all which have received widespread critical acclaim. Three of her novels have been optioned for television. Fiona was selected for the McDermott's prestigious New Blood panel at the 2017 Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival, where her novel was nominated for a Dead Good Reader Award for Most Exceptional Debut. That is quite an accolade. Into the Dark, Fiona's fifth novel, was published in April 2022 and has been described by Sarah Vaughan, author of Netflix's smash hit Anatomy of a Scandal, as complex, inventive, twisty, unsettling. When Fiona is not writing, she can be found on Twitter, eating biscuits or walking her dogs. She lives in Essex with her family and she is incredibly warm, friendly and generous with her time. Oh, that's nice. You added that bit on the end. That's not no, my no, biography. That's, that's the official biography, actually. That's where I found it. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I think that's probably largely true. Yeah. Um, I can't think of anything particular to add to that, although I would say that... Um, What's quite interesting is people often say, um, pick that out, that I'm a graduate of the Faber Academy writing a novel course. Um, But what fewer people know is that they invited me back um, last year and I taught my first Faber course as a tutor called Writing Crime. And so that was a really weird moment for me. It was like a full circle moment of having walked through the doors as a student and then last year walking through the doors as a tutor completely blew my mind um but yeah so that's pretty accurate I would say the student has become the master (laughs) I wouldn't go so far I would I would I'll do it for you I feel like I'm still learning all the time I think I feel like I'm learning something new with every book that I write and it's not a linear thing um every process is different and I kind of like I can't remember who I heard saying this but I, I like to believe that it's true that, um, you know, I haven't written my best book yet. I like that. Also, you have written some really good books. So you're on a really good track. <laughs> this is, if this aren't your best, then you're doing pretty well. <laughs> so I have to say. So I, I must confess that I have not read your new book yet, Into the Dark, which I want to ask you about. But I have read when I was 10 and loved it. So much fun. And so I know, Sarah, you've read it as well. 
Yes. Yeah. I've been sitting on my TBR for ages. And actually, when you said we were interviewing Fiona, I was like, fantastic, an excuse to read it. <laughs> I've got about 500 books on my TBR. It's not. A, <laughs> You're not the rent. only one. I find it really difficult. I'm finding it really difficult to read at the moment. And I have actually for, for quite some time. I'm not sure why. I don't know if it's a kind of leftover residual thing from lockdown, but you know, when it's always such a privilege, isn't it, to either get sent books or, you know, if you're able to buy books and have a huge teetering pile. And yet, you know, I haven't read, oh God, you know, three quarters of them. I want to, but it's just time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Funnily enough, when Frankie said that we were interviewing you and I was like, oh, fantastic. So I went to buy uh, when I was 10, went on Amazon, realised that I already owned it and then bought another six books. I was like, what? There's something very wrong with me. Yeah. No, your finger slips, you accidentally buy a library. These things yeah. happen. Let's um, go with that. <laughs> speaking of, 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 you just said you've not had a chance to read a lot lately because I know you've been hard at work on your next book, which we also want to ask you about. But what was the last book that you read and loved while we're on the subject? Well, I've just actually started this. Um, oh, I'm going to read it out because I know that uh, listeners won't be able to see this, but it's called <laughs> The Truth About Lisa Jewell. Um, and it's written by a guy called Will Brooker, who is a professor of cultural studies. And he basically followed Lisa while she wrote her follow up to her amazing The Family Upstairs. I think it's called The Family Remains. Um, and he basically got up close with her while she did it. Similar to um, what happened with Lee Childs, but someone um, followed him around. Rachel said nothing. I think it was Heather Martin and just found out kind of, oh no, Andy, Andy Martin, I think it was, followed, followed him around and just found out how these masters of, of crime fiction, of suspense, to distill down how they actually write a book. So I haven't got very far, but it's fascinating kind of so far. And I'm hoping that I might learn a few tricks of the trade from her. <laughs> there are worse people to learn from, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great book. You might have to pick that one up. I've been seeing it around, but now you've inspired me. That's I think it's only just. I think it only came out last week. So, um, And I, I was inspired to buy it as well and, and delve straight into it. Um, and I recently finished The Last Party by Claire McIntosh, which isn't out yet. I think it's out in August and it's the start of a new detective series for her featuring a Welsh, a feisty kind of Welsh detective. And that's pretty good as well. So um, I'd, I'd recommend that too. Excellent. So that, I'm sure, will be excellent. And who doesn't love a feisty Welsh detective? That's the best <laughs> setup ever I think for anything. It, I think it's the start of a new series for her. Feisty is a funny word, isn't it? Mm. I, like, I think feisty is open for discussion. I don't know. I think it depends who's using that term and how. It's rarely used to describe men, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what a feisty man. You never really hear that, do you? It's no, and actually, women. what's wrong with a woman just being kind of sparky and interesting and holding her ground? Sometimes I think feisty can be used in a derogatory way, um, whereas in this case, it isn't at all. It's just like a really strong female character, which I love to read about. It can be quite patronising, can't it? Like, oh, you're exactly. feisty. You're like, yeah. oh, I'll show you how feisty I am. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, as much as it is great to hear about other books and other authors, we want to talk all about you because we are so <laughs> grateful for your time. As I was just, we were just discussing before we started recording, I had the pleasure of meeting Fiona in real life 
recently and that's how I forced her to come on and spend this time with us because she was very graciously agreed she, well she basically held me at knife point I did. so I didn't have yeah. a choice yeah I believe it to be honest <laughs> Sarah knows I'm how te- many knives they have so <laughs> I'm teasing we were at the launch of was it Mike Craven's uh, latest the botanist yeah. and um we got chatting and I thought um how fab she was and then she invited me on to this so it was like great I was basically fangirling, but trying to be cool with it because I, was, I re- obviously recognised her straight away. And uh, we ended up chatting. I was like, actually, I've read a few of your books, Fiona. And please, will you come on my podcast? And she did pity on us. So here we are. But yeah, thank you again. I'll stop thanking you in a minute and we can just talk about your books instead. So let's, we'll start with, because I want to get onto a new book, but I just want to say with, um, I have a few questions about when I was 10, because it's such a you know, great read. If anyone's looking for a really twisty, dark thriller, then this is a great one to pick up. I wanted to kind of touch on the fact that obviously you come from a journalistic background. And obviously there is the, one of the protagonists of this book is a journalist. And like, hopefully you weren't on the showbiz side too involved in reporting on harrowing murders. I don't know. <laughs> But... Well, you know, actually I was because on in my sort of career, which actually at the Mirror, which spanned about 12 years, the first half of it um, I spent on news and, you know, features to an extent, and the second half was showbiz. So in the first, in the first half of my time there, I covered all sorts of big breaking news stories, you know, and, you know, some really brutal and really sad stories. You know, I, I, I've talked about this before, but I, you know, I've sat in the kind of sitting room of, you know, a mother whose daughter has been abducted. You know, I've stood outside um, a coroner's court when the families have gathered who have lost their loved ones in a rail disaster. I've covered the aftermath of terrorist attacks, you know, all sorts of stuff. And I'm really careful. I don't really like writing about real life crimes, especially if the families might still be alive or, you know, people connected to these stories you know, might stumble across it in in a novel. But what I do remember, even though it was quite a long time ago, because you can never forget, you know, what it's like to be up close to that fear, grief, uh, shock, you know, all of those, or even speaking to, you know, a bewildered police officer who is, you know, in deep shock himself by something that's happened. And, you know, these things that I have, experience that I've reported on you know do find their way into my writing but you know in a roundabout way you know so I I I use the emotions I might have felt myself or I might have witnessed without specifics basically it must be difficult to navigate as you say but you do it beautifully I think you always your portrayal is very sensitive towards victims within your writing I think it's really important that victims have a voice because they often don't in real life And so in my own writing, I try and make sure that, you know, generally in my books, there is a strand which relates to the investigation and be it by police officers or by a journalist. There is a strand that relates to the perpetrator of the crime. And then there is a a strand that relates to the victims because, you know, victims often don't get much of a voice, you know, and I feel it's my responsibility in some ways as a writer to make sure that they're heard. No, do you know what I was thinking about? There's, um, there was a part, of, quite a throwaway line in when I was ten, and it mentioned about a, I think it was some parents who had worked with the press because they didn't want that they wanted their daughter's story to have a voice, basically. 
And funnily enough, when I read it, it kind of jumped out at me because I'd never really thought about it before. You always think, oh, these poor parents harassed by the press or, you know, whatever the public perception is. But actually, it made me go, oh, no, I I guess that there is a massive benefit in those cases. I think it's, it's, do you know what, it's really interesting. And it was a bit of a moral dilemma that I often struggled with that because I did, and you know, feel uncomfortable knocking on the door, say, of someone who is recently bereaved, particularly if in some kind of horrific circumstance, right? Mm. So um, that would be really hard. And sometimes, you know, the victim's family might be furious, and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll accuse you of, you know, being leeches and uh, slam the door in your face and be really angry. And I never, ever took that personally. And I understood the place from which that came from. And then sometimes you would have, it was often a mother, actually, who would open the door and she would say, come in, come in. And she would get out her photographs of, of her child or her partner or whoever it was and show you those photographs and tell you about them because it became you know, almost a sort of cathartic experience. And it was a way to keep the profile of the case in the newspaper or to tell people exactly, you know, who their loved one was. And I think it's, and I don't think there is a, you know, right answer. everybody handles grief um, in, in very different ways. I mean, you know, I've also had bricks thrown at my car. Um, I had, God. I've been, I've been roughed up, you know, I've been held up by the scruff of my neck and, you know, threatened with violence and all sorts of things. But I don't I don't take these things personally because I think when you are in an extreme place and you know extreme emotions extreme emotions can make us all behave in you know extreme ways I I never kind of I never really took it personally but you know it's part of the reason why I left journalism you're really bad about threatening you with that knife now sorry about that <laughs> flashback sure, I can handle it <laughs> clearly my goodness <laughs> with when I was 10 specifically obviously it's a it's a real it's a really rich story in so many ways and it's obviously got you know horrific violent crime within it but there's also so much kind of you read it and you sympathize with the kids in it and you completely understand why they do it so I found it interesting as well your um the way you represent not only the victims but also the kind of the perpetrators who are also victims in themselves well, that's exactly what I was going to say. You sort of took the words right out of my mouth because actually people people that commit these brutal crimes are, are often victims themselves. You know, percentage-wise, a huge proportion of people that go on to and do terrible things have been victims themselves, you know, of childhood abuse, neglect, violence, all kinds of things. And so I think one of the things that I try to do in all my writing is to give the reader that kind of moral dilemma themselves you know that they do I like my reader to also feel sympathy for these people that are doing terrible things and because I think actually it's something that fascinates me in all my writing and it's you know if you look closely at any of my characters you know you'll recognize that it's this whole thing about shades of grey all the time that you know no one is 2D everyone is, is kind of on a scale and, um, you know, somebody that does awful things also probably loves someone, cares about something. And somebody who is, you know, might be perceived as being good can often be driven to do terrible things. And that's kind of that space that I like to occupy. What drives people to behave in the way they do? What motivates them? And it, you know, when I started out in 
with writing and I hadn't I'd got an agent but you know I'd never had a book published and one of the things that she wrote on my manuscript my very first manuscript and that she still does now even you know I'm a much more sort of experienced writer is why and that is the most important question when you're building character because once you have worked out why your character is doing what they're doing then the story tells itself you know people don't do things for no reason they are driven to do things and you know very very rarely you might get someone who is an absolute kind of I don't know psychopath um, in the true sense and will just do something for the sheer hell of it but that is incredibly rare um, and I'm interested in this whole debate about kind of nurture versus nature are people that do awful things are they entitled to a second chance do they deserve one you know that's one of the themes of when I was 10 too and you know I'm not saying I have the answers to any of these questions but um, I'm interested in them and I think you know I like to pose these questions for the for the readers to answer or to think about themselves. Yeah I think one of the big things that divides society the most is this question of child killers isn't it and that thing of rehabilitation and you know can you rehabilitate it's really interesting um, well, I, I think it's something that kind of fascinates us and horrifies us in mm. equal measure because it's this idea that a child you know might be capable of committing such a heinous crime such an atrocity and not only can they commit this atrocity but they do it against another child mm. um, you know and I think that is quite a fascinating concept too and one of the things actually that um, I deliberately didn't do in when I was 10 was because I was very aware of, you know, say the Jamie Bolger case, something like that, that I didn't want to draw those comparisons in my fiction. But it is true to say, despite what I was saying earlier about trying to avoid real cases, that the, the, the kind of inspiration, the jumping off, off point for when I was 10 was a very specific thing that I read. Um, and it centred on the child killer, Mary Bell. Um, yeah. And, you know, for those who don't know who she she is, she was a child who also committed, uh, who, who was a, who killed two other children, basically. But that wasn't what I was focusing on. What I was interested in was the fact that she had served her time and that she was living quietly under an assumed name and that the press had got wind of who she was and they were preparing to unmask her true identity. And they were gathering outside her house um, in a quiet village at three o'clock in the morning. And she had to wake up her daughter and tell her who she oh. really was. And that concept just gave me kind of goosebumps. I thought, imagine having to tell someone that, like your child, that. And so that was the sort of jumping off point. And interestingly, you know, the community in which Mary Bell had made a life were very accepting of, uh, of her and protected her to an extent. But, you know, I think it's a really interesting concept. And I, I don't know, like, do you, you know, can you, do we make mistakes? And if, can we atone for them? And if we have atoned for them by serving, you know, time in an institution, should we be allowed to live our lives if we've taken someone else's life? I don't know. I don't it's know. a very difficult question. And one that I feel like, and particularly in this country, we're so old fashioned in so many ways. I think it's for a lot of people, it's very black and white and people like labels. It's good, bad. Like you say, there's no there's a grey area in between. And it's yeah, impossible to judge. Absolutely. And I think also, you know, if you look at the kind of, you know, the type of crime that someone might have committed, you know, like if I don't know, somebody 
just goes on a horrific spree or abducts and kills, I don't know, uh, anybody um, randomly, then that is very difficult to get your head around. Whereas, you know, if you're a parent, say, who is protecting your child or, you know, reacting or, um, or, or self-defense, you know, all of these things, or, you know, you've been somebody who is in a, a situation where you've experienced domestic violence within the home and then all of a sudden you just break and you hit back you know there are shades of gray and everything and it's these kind of things that fascinate me really I have to I mean it's slight topic change I was <laughs> probably for the last third of when I was 10 I was reading it and I'd kind of clocked what had happened back in the original crime days and I was reading, I was reading it. And um, I discussed this on our last podcast episode. I'd read Stay Close by Harlan Coburn, which was a fantastic book. But I'd worked out the twist at the end, ages in advance. And that was it. And I'm still slightly angry about it because I was so disappointed. And I was just waiting to get to the last page. And I finished when I was 10. And there was another twist. I was was so happy. I was so (laughs) relieved. I was like, that's it. I'm never reading another crime novel again if this is what happens. <laughs> so. make a very awkward Zoom call. So thank, <laughs> yeah, thanks, Fiona. wouldn't have shown up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's, I mean, I think with when I was, was 10, it was one of my most joyous writing experiences because, you know, it was actually a very, in the end, quite a simple book to, to write. It, it's divided into three parts and I knew what was going to happen in each part. And it was just kind of, I mean, I say it as if it's, you know, the easiest thing in the world. It really isn't. But <laughs> I knew where I was going with this book. Uh, and it was a very sort of clear roadmap. And so I knew what I was going to do and then just did it. And yeah, lots of people have said about this kind of rug pulling moments throughout the book. Um, and I enjoy doing that. I mean, I, you know, the whole twist reveal thing is an interesting and ongoing debate. I think, you know, is it a twist too far, you know, and... I mean, I'm not a huge fan of publishers kind of signalling to the reader, you know, the twist you won't see coming. So yeah. that the second you start reading the book, you're looking for that twist immediately. You know, I think you know it's much more pleasurable to pick up a book and have no expectation and no real knowledge of what you're going to encounter. But yeah, I mean, I was very kind of clear in my head about how that book was going to unfold. And I was pleased with it when I finished it. And speaking of... Um, going into a book's cold and not really knowing about them let's do the opposite of that and can you please tell us about your new book that's just come out into the dark which I'm holding up to the camera right now that I'm very excited to get stuck into but what would you like people to know going into it there's a couple of things really so it's the start of a new series and it features a detective called uh, Saul Anguish who is a new he's a new <laughs> he's a new recruit um to the police force and he teams up with a forensic linguist called Clover March who has kind of pastel blue hair and so in his his head he just calls her blue that's who she becomes <laughs> a Saul and blue and um they are an interesting couple they're young and they have a very strong physical attraction to each other. And Saul particularly is very morally ambiguous. He treads, he treads the narrow way between light and dark. And readers have responded extremely strongly to this pairing. Those who have read my previous books will have come across Saul before. He was a teenage boy who had been groomed by a serial killer in The Collector. Oh um, and he goes... God. And he goes on to become a detective. But 
Into the Dark can absolutely be read as the first in a series. It's intended as the first in a series. But um, if you're interested in Saul's origin story, you can find that in the collector. And they, um, Saul is new to Midtown-on-Sea, which is an affluent seaside community. Um, and he gets caught up into this investigation. And the investigation centres around Piper and Julianne, who are the best of friends. Um, they've known each other for years. Um, and they run together every week. And one morning, Julianne goes to Piper's house called Sea Wings, which overlooks the bay, um, for their weekly run. And the coffee pot's still warm. Um, there's a bowl of half-eaten cereal on the table. The mobile phones are charging on the worktop. Uh, but the whole family has vanished off the face of the earth. Um, and you go back in time. You go back five days to find out what happened what led to their disappearance were they abducted murdered or was it something even darker than that Love so it. that's into the dark and then saw so I'm, I'm writing my sixth book now and the soul and blue feature in that too and um, readers have been in touch with me to say how much they love them and that you know Saul is Saul is a very uh, dark character and um, some of my female readers have said to me I know it's wrong but you know I think I'm a bit in love with him um, which I absolutely love so um, yeah long may that continue. Oh brilliant I um I saw in your Twitter feed that you'd written about your sixth book you, you described it as dark as oh, fantastic so excellent. It is dark yeah it's it's I think what did I I think I said it was brutal and tender and yeah. sad and dark and I, I I'm really enjoying writing it I am um, I have a deadline at the end of the month, so I'm I'm coming towards the end of it, and it's all falling into the place in the in the way that writing does. It's this, you know, I I we have this endless conversation between fellow writers about whether they are plotters or punters, and you know, I'm sure your listeners will will know the difference. But in a nutshell, you know, plotter is someone that outlines it all, and a pantser is someone that flies by the seat of their <laughs> pants. You know, I absolutely fall into the category of a pantser. I don't write anything down. I don't plan it. But I suppose, you know, in some ways, I hold the outline in my head. That's what I do. But there's this weird thing that happens when you write, and you can think, I don't know what's going to happen. What, you know, how am I going to finish this? And then this kind of alchemy happens. Um, and don't ask me how, but it just does. And then all of a sudden I was sitting at my desk, in fact, today, and this idea just came to me for kind of one of the, the climax scenes. And I was just like, of course. And yeah, so I'm feeling quite happy about that. Just oh, that must be the best feeling. <laughs> it is the best feeling, especially when you're like, oh, God, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to deal with that. And then you're like, that's it. That's it. I've worked it out. Seeing as we've touching on it now, what? do you enjoy most and least about it? Ah, the thing I enjoy most is writing the words, the end. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that's my slightly tongue-in-cheek answer. But I think the thing I love best about writing is, you know, just when it's me and my keyboard and the screen and it is that kind of white, hot, creativity I suppose that is the thing that's why I became a writer I love writing stories before the edits you know before worrying about who's going to blurb it before you're worrying about sales and promotion experience and all of that it's just you and the words on the page and that is my absolutely favorite bit because I love writing you know I love writing and 
you know, these days being an author is so much more than just the writing of a book. But I, that's definitely my favourite book. And the thing I like the least is probably edits. And <laughs> I don't mean that I'm precious about having my work edited because I'm really not. And I think that's the journalist in me. I'm really happy to you know, have people point out to me that there's inconsistencies or this doesn't really make sense or you can make this better. It's not the best. You know, I've seen you write better, you know, apply that magic to this bit or whatever. It's nothing like that. It's just the fact that I've written the book and I get bored really easily. (laughs) And the fact that I've got to go back again and again to kind of make it better. And some writers will say to you that they love the editing process. They love the refining and you know, making it better. But um, I am quite a slow, steady writer. And so my agent and my editor both say that my drafts, you know, my first drafts when when they receive them are, are generally really clean. And I just get bored so easily. So it feels like a whole load of homework to have to go. <laughs> but I know it makes the book better. So it's not, it's nothing personal against my editor or anything like that. It's just the process of the edit, I suppose. Have you already kind of mentally put it to bed and moved on to your next story at that point? Also, oh, it's just the relief because generally speaking, I am, and it's the same pattern with every book that as your deadline approaches, it becomes more and more intense. So, you know, you wear the same pants three days in a row and you don't wash your hair and there's loads of pots all over the place. I mean, that's not strictly true. I do, I do change my underwear. you know it's just you're so like I do I mean it's not an exaggeration I do spend kind of really almost every waking minute working on it because it just you know and it and and it's all the better for it because there's a momentum there's pace behind it and you're just so focused on it and then you know once you hand it in you just kind of have this sort of metaphorical and you know I generally have a big clean and tidy of the house because everything's been left for ages and yeah well exactly I was just like making sure that my children have got clean underwear and screen from that's the only thing I do and pack lunches and everything else just goes to pot but yeah I mean yeah there's a definite yeah you do put it you know you do you do but 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 I know it's coming back so Mm -hmm. then you know I'm I'm prepared for that and then often you've had a little bit of breathing space and then you go back to almost with a fresh pair of eyes and you know you can be much more or certainly I find I can be much more decisive and I'm like you know that doesn't scan very well or let's chop here or let's add here you know that kind of thing. When do you move on to your next novel do you give yourself a break between them or do you start before you even finish the last one? Um, I generally start thinking about it now or you know what am I going to do for my next book Um, Mm. how am I going to make that work and I never really I mean you know, there's so many kind of processes that you go through because you get, you know, your you, you might get a structural edit or a line edit from your editor, um, and then you might have to do the kind of, I suppose, the close copy edit and the proofread and all of these things. So it comes back and forth, back and forth. And so if I waited until I'd got everything until I start the next one, then, you know, I'd be probably about three months behind. But you do also need, or I do anyway, a period of time where you're mulling over what you're going to write next and you know you can have an idea and then you think is it meaty or muscular enough probably not Um, I discuss my ideas with my editor and agent and we think about you know how we can how how we can make it better whether it's going to work or not you know what the kind of appetite commercially is for that kind of book and yeah, but then but then I, I never really start to write um, until I have in my head I know what the first line and the last line. Love that. <laughs> so that's your start. You literally start from the beginning. 
Oh, I start from the beginning. Every book I've written has just been chronological. That's what I, that's how I did. That's my process. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think like we talk about it a lot and, you know, and, and I really would like to be the kind of writer that does an outline. I think it would be so reassuring to have a chapter plan that you follow and that you know that it works and there's no holes in your plot. But I've, I've tried to do it and I'm just like, this is so boring. How do I know what's going to happen? Like, how do I know what's going to happen? I haven't written it yet. Um, yeah. And so, and because, you know, sometimes it, for me, it takes a bit of time to kind of get to know my characters a bit, to think about the story. And I can't decide all my ideas in like a two week period of time. And, you know, writers that do plan will say, well, of course not, but you can change it as you go along. And I'm like, well, what's the point of having a plan then? So it's all <laughs> in my head. It's all up there. But I think I've been talking about this with a friend and I think I do plan, but I just keep that plan inside. Mm. And I know the, the sort of the vague shape of the story. I know what my reveals are going to be or what my surprises are. And once I know kind of roughly what they are, then I just write the story and that's how I do it. And I can't do it any other way. I'd like to. So, so just to clarify, you, when you start the book, you have the first line and the last line already yeah. in your mind. Yeah. Wow. So you're basically writing to that end point yeah. the whole time. And it's really helpful. I mean, I um, when I did my favourite Academy writing course, and this sounds so obvious, right? It sounds so stupid and obvious. The tutor there, a guy called Richard Skinner, who's really good. One of the things that he said, and this is probably the most significant piece of advice that I took away with me, was finish what you start, right? And of course, that sounds obvious. But when I was a new writer, um, I just wrote the first chapter over and over again. And I kept (laughs) writing it. I kept polishing it, finessing it, thinking I can't move on until I've got this first chapter perfect. And actually, what I learned very, very quickly was um, you can go back and you can redraft and you can change and you can shape and fill in plot holes and you can do all sorts of things. And the end of a book, the end of a book informs the beginning. Mm. So, um, you know, it's much more, well, I I mean, I find it much easier to write knowing what that kind of end point is going to be. And that's not to say that it doesn't necessarily sort of change or I might tweak it, but I know what my last chapter is going to be and pretty much my last line so yeah I mean that's and then I kind of fill everything in in between <laughs> is that weird then as I don't know <laughs> it's just really interesting I've not heard that before I think yeah, as you say we've spoken to a few writers now we've been lucky enough to and everyone's process is so different but it's fascinating yeah. to hear definitely that would absolutely I mean I'm not a writer and I will never be a writer because I don't have the attention span for a start (laughs) but that is exactly how I would go I think I can't be bothered with the planning do you ever have a character who sort of surprises you and does something that you weren't expecting does that make me sound really odd (laughs) no I mean people say that like writers say that but I always think no I'm the one totally in control of what my character is doing they are not in control of me but you know, of course, there are moments when I might be, I might think of something and think, oh, that has surprised me, but that works, that really works for that character. And so I can be taken by surprise, but I never think it's my character doing that. I always think it's me. Yes, <laughs> I want to give myself very, the credit. <laughs> no, very well adjusted. <laughs> Speaking of characters, if you had to be a character from one of your books, who would you be and why? I think. I was thinking about this and I think my probably 
one of my favorite characters i mean it's like asking me to choose a favorite child isn't it but i think one of my favorite That's the next characters question. <laughs> is the um is the journalist in when i was 10 Brinley booth because she is loosely based on me and in fact all the journalists in my novels are loosely based on me i always describe a dark-haired reporter with a round face who wears dark gla- dark rimmed glasses <laughs> um, and a few of my friends who know me well have said is that you and i'm like yes it is um but also because i you know you never see characters eating in novels. Like, Brinley's hungry. I'm greedy. I like food. I'm like, how can you get through a day if you can't have your sandwiches or your crisps or whatever? Um, oh, I think my favourite line of the whole book was probably, do you like hummus? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I just, and, but also, you know, on a more serious note, sometimes um, I absorb things like, and there's a line in When I Was Ten, and that's taken directly from real life. And I am a kind of curvier woman. And I was at a, a gig um, and I was queuing for the bar. And this guy was absolutely kind of hammering into me, he kept pushing into me. And I, I said to him, um, could, please, could you stop doing that? And he said, well, I wouldn't touch you through choice. Right? And it was such a kind of cutting comment. But, you know, I remembered it scribbled it away wrote it down and there it's turned up in one of my books and I think I like Brinley because she hasn't got it all figured out you know she she's like me I suppose in some ways I mean and that's not to say all of her is me but I've certainly drawn on kind of aspects of myself to create that character and then you know if you're talking about well moving on and sort of obviously I briefly talked about them before but the pairing of Saul and Blue I'm absolutely loving writing them I have resisted writing a series um you know this is this is my fifth book and um and it's only really now that I've kind of these characters are the ones that I would want to take forward into a you know a more long-running series they interest me they excite me um I'm getting to know them properly too and I think that's a really exciting place to be also credit to you for including that man's line in your book but not having him killed off in the next <laughs> sentence which is exactly what I would have done very but painfully think, <laughs> but, but I think writing is one of those things that you know I use it to process things that have happened to me and you know I I, I do that a lot whether it's kind of hurt you know grief fear you know all of my writing I think often you know particularly the type of books that I write they're so dark you know, they come from a place of fear, you know, and this is a way to control those fears, to kind of keep a handle on them and to have some kind of uh, control over the outcome. I think people are always going to um, do things to you, say things to you, hurt you, do all sorts of stuff. And and I, and I collect it all um, in my little my little notebook and <laughs> put it into my books. I like the idea of you like writing it down as he's saying it, like without your notepad. You're like you're going in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mentioned eating in food, which is something that Sarah and I are also very passionate about in our lives. So, what would your death row meal be? Do you know what? This is really interesting. So, I absolutely love Chinese food. I would eat it every single day and twice on Sundays if I could but I was also like well you cannot be a really good roast dinner um with all of the trimmings you know Yorkshire pudding a parsnips a bit of Brussels sprouts red wine gravy all of those things however I, I need to kind of 
qualify this by saying is when I actually thought seriously about my death row meal, I did think, I'm not sure I could eat if I was about to die by lethal injection. And I don't know if you guys know this, you probably do, um, but there is a website which has everyone's, yeah. you know, last death row meal on it. And I, I was fascinated by the fact that um, Aileen Wallace, who was made famous by Charlize Theron in the film mm-hmm. Monster, she only had a cup of coffee before she died because she, funnily enough, she wasn't hungry. Um, and But then um, John Wayne Gacy had like a whole bucket of, you know, KFC, twelve fried shrimp, uh, portion of French fries, you know, all of that kind of. So I think it's really interesting what people choose. Um, but I'm not, I think, I don't know that I could actually eat when it came to it. Mm. I don't think there's, I can't think of a scenario where I wouldn't want to eat at something, to be honest with you. It's a wonder I'm not eating right now on this call. What do you think you would have? Maybe you would just have like the biggest meal that you could possibly think of to delay the inevitable for as long as you could. You want to go out and banquet. Give people a show on the way out, I think, you know, I don't know. God, that's a good point. um, Thank you for taking the question so seriously and really giving it thought. I appreciate that one. Obviously, you have a clear interest in true crime is inherent in what you do and obviously you come from a journalistic background do you often find that um the writing process for the way you wrote as a journalist influences your writing as a as a fiction writer is there often a lot of crossover in your style and approach or is it a completely different kettle of fish um I think there are similarities between journalism and fiction writing and and by that I mean in terms of a process and being used to being edited but also because when you write newspaper stories whatever your newspaper story is you know, your intention is the same as if you're writing fiction, which is that you want people to carry on reading. So you're always looking for either that, you know, the top line or the emotional heart of the story. I mean, that is what people want. That is what people will read. And whether it is, you know, a new story um, and the minute that you start to, I use this as an example before, but, you know, I don't know, say, you talk about that terrible um, terrorist attack on, on Westminster Bridge and, you know, you might turn on your radio and hear that, you know, five people have been killed in this awful attack and you're like, oh, that's really terrible. And then you go about your day and then later, when you, when you tune in again, that you find out, you know, one was a mother on the way to collect her two children mm. from school, you know, and the other couple were on the last day of the holiday of a lifetime, for example, you know, and once you start to you know, find out the faces behind the story. That is when it really starts to matter to you. And, you know, I think that a lot about crime, crime fiction and I've, and in fact, any fiction, and I've been thinking that um, a great deal more lately as well, is that often it's not so much the plot, the story that we remember, it's always the characters. And in, you know, crime fiction that you know, it has a longevity, you know, long running series, all of those kind of things that it's the, you know, or, you know, or even shorter series, it's the character that you remember, not the story. And so um, that's something that I'm thinking a lot more about in my writing now. That's why you stumbled upon two such interesting characters for the, mm-hmm. for the new series then. Well, you know, I mean, it was, they kind of, it's, it's, it's quite an organic thing as well. It's not that I'm kind of really sort of calculating about it and think, oh, how can I do this? But what I do is I kind of sit and think what interests me and how can I make my characters memorable? That's the thing. How can I make people remember them and then also warm to them? You know, you want people to be rooting for them and 
that was something that felt kind of quite important to me. And the one big question we always ask on this podcast, as it is our namesake to a degree, what book would you be buried with? Well, I did take this question very seriously. Good, finally. Um, (laughs) And I decided that I would want to be buried with a book called How to Be a Vampire by Amy Gray so that I could become the undead, so I could rise again. (laughs) From my burial guidebook. (laughs) From my burial place and uh, have a life um, as the undead. Is that okay? That's brilliant. So like that. <laughs> a very practical approach to this question. It's, a, it's basically a handbook of how to how to live again when you're dead, essentially. So um, I think that would suit me down to the ground. I love that. That's brilliant. As someone that often is told looks like a vampire, I really appreciate you representing my people with that. So thank you so much. <laughs> a beautiful vampire, you know. <laughs> Stop it. No, that is uh, that's the, probably the best answer we've had yet, I think. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> that's really great. I Thank could listen you. to you talk forever because we also share you know, mutual friend Chris Whitaker. I don't want to give him credit for anything, but <laughs> that's quite, kind of how I, we met. But um, he said that you have the most interesting stories and everything. So Aww. I could quite happily, I mean, he did also say that they were fueled by whiskey drunk out of a paper bag, but <laughs> I would well, love it, to. It is. I, I think that um, he's referring to is that would often be found with a bottle of neat bourbon um, at some event or another, sharing it around and drinking it. I mean, that's one of the absolute joys, actually, of of changing career later in my life, because um, I was I didn't know that I could be a writer. I didn't think that it was a job for someone like me. And I gave myself until my 40th birthday to um, to get a book deal. And I squeaked in, I think, about two <laughs> months beforehand. Um, but what it has done is it's I never expected to make a whole new raft of friends in my 40s. You know, this kind of crime community, which is so sort of inclusive and warm and supportive. And it's been a revelation. Like going to the festivals, it's like going back to university, but with more money in your pocket. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it, you know, it's really good fun. So, yeah, I've met some really cool people. Um, and that makes me extra excited for going to Harrogate because you're going to Harrogate. So. Yes, I shall see you there. I'm doing a panel on the Friday. I'll really looking forward to it. I love Harrogate. It's one of my absolute favourite festivals. And I think this year is going to be absolutely insane because... Um, the festival did happen last year, but it was quieter and understandably so, you know, but I think there's a lot of people coming this year. So it's going to be uh, enormous fun, I think. Oh, I will be at your panel whooping and cheering. <laughs> and and also just to say, I think you might already be a vampire because it's as if you're over 40, your skin is ridiculous. <laughs> like that's what it, yeah, you are already a vampire. So there we Thank go. You. I'm nearly 50 actually. No, right? you're not. So yeah. Ridiculous. I'll have what she's having. <laughs> It's all that Chinese food. Is it MSG that does it? I need to get some MSG. (laughs) (laughs) It's the good shit. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much, Fiona. We're so excited to to get stuck into Into the Dark and please come back and speak to us again soon. And I will see you at Harrogate. I'm so excited. (laughs) See you there. I'll try not to just follow you around the whole time like a little lost puppy. Um, (laughs) Creep. Yep. Yep. Usually. Yeah. I won't bring any knives this time. Whatever. 
<laughs> yeah, best not. I, God, had I known that there would be drinking in car parks, I'd have cancelled my holiday. I told you. Oh, Sarah, are you not coming? No, I'm on a family holiday with my parents, who I've, uh-huh. well, I've seen my mum recently. I haven't seen my dad in years because of COVID. So, right, okay. yeah, prioritised it. I think that's Frankie's probably, horror. yeah. <laughs> I think your priorities are completely out of whack and I'm very upset. But yeah. I suppose they did give you life, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, so. 2023. 2023 we'll be we'll do the big thought but yeah fiona thank you so much for your time and everyone go out and buy into the dark and all of fiona's back catalogue because they're all excellent reads and you won't be disappointed thank you for having me thank you and also where can people follow you on social media so you can find me on twitter under um oh i think i'm under fiona and cummins on twitter and then i'm fiona cummins author on instagram and i am trying on facebook it's not my natural kind of comfort zone but i think i'm also under fiona cummins author there as well but i don't think i'm following anyone i don't think i've got the hang of facebook i think i might need to follow some people (laughs) frankie's like head of social media for quite a large company so she's your woman well, you can give me some tips then when we're in we were in Harrogate, and I have gone nowhere near TikTok. I have to admit, but um, you know, never say never. Well, that's it. Once we've had whiskey in the car park at Harrogate, <laughs> you'll be doing a TikTok dance to something. <laughs> it's going to happen, Fiona. We're going to do it. <laughs> Can't wait. Cool. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We will be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode. And uh, yeah, anything else, Sarah? No. What, what, where can they follow us on social media, Sarah? What are our handles? You're asking the wrong person. Yep. Uh, it's Red and Buried Podcast. There we go. A podcast on the end. Yep. yep. <laughs> Nailed it. You can see how this works on this show, Fiona. But yeah, thanks everyone. Speak to you soon. Bye. Bye. Elsewhere on We Made This. We dig music. This is evidence enough that I was kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel <laughs> particularly because your initial choice was from 1986 <laughs> <laughs> it was on a 1978 playlist people yeah. that do year-based playlists need to calm the fuck down and check their facts <laughs> i mean granted i am a person that's done a year-based playlist and i need to calm down <laughs> and check my fucking facts which is fine right yeah that's fair but like or you can just do what I do and like just say, no, it's a compilation album that's released in that year and I'm definitely going to do it. I can't, no, I can't no. do that because he... Yes, no. Chris Rear has a time machine. He released a compilation of his mid-80s tracks but, you know, earlier. the weird thing is, so, yeah, we, we switched this one out quite late on in our preparation. For the Last podcast, night. And, mm. and, and it made fuck all difference to any of our notes. Dream Given Form, a Babylon 5 podcast. On a science fiction heavy TV series, I'm not sure how much you can push the boundaries that way. So I think it has to be in terms of storytelling, yeah. and character, and progressiveness, I think. And kind of looking back at Sensei, I think that's a good way of going forward. So what are your thoughts around the idea of the CW network being the network to pick up the Babylon 5 reboot? I, I don't know whether it's the right one or not. In all honesty, mm. and with the recent kind of announcement that CW is being sold, yeah, uh, which is why um, the pilot script's not been picked up. 
frame to frame. The overarching narrative of Nolan's trilogy is so good. Nolan dedicated an entire movie to us understanding Bruce Wayne and why Bruce Wayne mm. wants to become the embodiment of fear. That's what that groundwork is what then allows the Dark Knight to become the incredibly tortured, bleak, like almost nihilistic beast that it is, in, in which there's no such thing as a hero. There are no heroes. No, exactly. But as, as a question to you, are you are you suggesting then if a film hypothetically was to exist without giving us the Batman Begin portion, but to exist in, I don't know, the second or third year of the Batman story that is dark, bleak and nihilistic... If it was not to have the Batman Begins, do you think it wouldn't quite work as well as The Dark Knight? Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network.